Okay, this morning is February 6th. It's Sunday morning. Our message this morning is going to be friendly captivity. That ought to be one of those oxymorons, huh? Friendly captivity. There ought to be no such thing. The reality is what plagues the church, what plagues the people of God, is not that a foreign army has come and overpowered us, but that often we have befriended our captors and decided to live in captivity. I heard a couple things this week that... I had planned to preach on this subject anyway. I told you all several weeks ago that this was something that had been rolling around in my thought. But I heard something that just was the most perplexing, hurtful thing that I've heard in a long time, and I don't know why. You know, I don't... Jesus looked at His generation one time and He said, what a wicked and adulterous generation. Now, the reality is, the Jewish people, the people that He was talking to, this race that He was talking to, you know, it, I guess it's kind of relative because outwardly they were not adulterous, not, not at all. Outwardly they were really not all that wicked. He was more speaking of a spiritual condition than a physical one. But listen to what I'm fixing to tell you. On Good Morning America about two days ago, does anybody watch Good Morning America? Okay, well on Good Morning America a couple of days ago, uh, some people that do polls um, have been doing statistical polls, blind polls, for some 60 years on a subject and they shared their latest results. It seems that going back some 60 years when you poll men anonymously, they don't have to give their name if there is no chance that their anonymity will be violated, admit to adultery in the numbers of somewhere between 49 and 51%. That's horrible, isn't it? 60 years to the present, that statistic has not changed more than a percentage point or two a year. Some years it's 49, some it's 51, but it's always been between... Isn't that horrible? That's not the shocking part. It's really not. The shocking part, though, is that when they first started keeping this poll some 60 years ago, women were between 10 and 15%. Every year that has uh, increased steadily until this year it's 52%. Now... As I began to think about that, I thought, wow, that's shocking. But then I was driving down the interstate, I was looking around at all the cars, all the people, and I realized, since you can't assume that all of these people are in the same house, you know, you have a cheating house and then a, a house that's not cheating, then a cheating house, then a house. If it's equal on both sides of the aisle and it's somewhere around 50%, literally everybody that you pass on the road could be a cheater, you know? And I, I thought, if Jesus called that a generation wicked and adulterous, what is that? When we walk out to check our mail, you see your neighbors cutting the grass. And so, what does that tell you? That when there is no thought of accountability, when there is no fear that your anonymity will be violated, that's the ones that have admitted to it. I thought, man, that is the most horrible, heartbreaking thing. Well, how does that happen? And uh, I began to think about a book that I guess was written... 15, 20 years ago. It's called Frog in the Kettle. And it's this principle that I guess might be kind of overdone. I hope you all all haven't heard about it. I know some of you have. But they say that if you take a frog and you drop it into boiling water, it immediately jumps out as long as it's capable of jumping out. But if you put a frog in lukewarm water and then turn up the degree of heat little bit by little bit over increments, it'll sit there until it boils alive without a thought of jumping out. I know it's true with an elephant. If you take an elephant and bind it with a chain that it can't break when it's little, by the time it's older, you can bind it with a shoelace and it won't try to break it 
I mean, that, that, that is a principle that we see in nature. You see it born out in animals. You just don't expect it to be true in us. You remember the movie Psycho? Black and white, the shower scene, you know? It's horrifying to a generation of people. I mean, you cover your kids' eyes. My children could watch that and wouldn't think anything of it. How does that happen? How do we get into a place where we've been desensitized, where the degree has, of, of perversity and evil has been turned up on us little bit by little bit until we're used to it? We're friendly with it. And there's nothing that's offensive to us anymore. And it's happening. It's happening all around us. As we kind of cover this subject of friendly captivity, I want you to just keep in mind, friendly captivity is the most dangerous kind because you don't realize it's happening. You don't, don't realize it because there's no real warfare that is occurring. It's one thing if Stephen comes to my house and says, I'm going to take your house from you. He and I will square off and there is a battle. It's quite another when the attack is subtle, though. Turn with me to Exodus 1. <clears throat> There's a woman named Beth Moore who's teaching a Bible study in town right now, and I hear that it is excellent. I'm a little jealous that I don't qualify to be there. Uh, <laughs> you need to be a female to attend. And uh, I thought about sending my wife you know, with a tape recorder. I'm just teasing. But as I was talking with somebody who uh, was attending that Bible study, uh, Beth Moore mentioned that ba the Babylonian captivity was a friendly captivity. And I didn't see it that way. I, I'm, I'm, I'm nobody to dis disagree with her, but I'm just, in my thoughts, I didn't see it that way. Because an army came in and they took people captive and they came back. The way, though, in her mind it was a friendly captivity is because they were treated well once they were there until one culture influenced the other. Okay, but I, I want to take it to a little further degree to draw the lines more clearly for you. Egypt in the Bible is many things. I mean, one day the Bible says that <coughs> God's uh, Word will flow out of Egypt. I mean, it speaks of Egypt being saved. But most of the time in the Bible, Egypt symbolizes the world. Most of the time. Even when we have Joseph announced as Zophonoth Paneah, his Egyptian name that meant Savior, <coughs> and even the Jewish people and others all rushing during a seven-year time period of, of trouble to Egypt, we see uh, Joseph as savior of the world in that scenario. But most of the time, Egypt's not used in a positive light when it is symbolizing the world. And in Exodus 1, I want to pick up with a topic. <clears throat> it says, uh, these are the names. Incidentally, I can't help but teach things uh, without every once in a while giving you a Hebrew perspective. You realize that your Bible, as much as it is uh, contains the same words as the Jewish Bible. They're organized very differently. The books are thought of as differently. Does anybody know what the name of Exodus is in the Hebrew Bible? <laughs> I love the Jews. They're so functionally minded. You know, Greeks look for wisdom. Jews look for a sign. What would you name this book if you had never heard of anything? Well, the first few words of it are these are the names. <laughs> That's what they named it. <laughs> these are the names. Isn't that great? That's just a little fact I wanted you to know. The Hebrew title of Exodus is These Are the Names. These are the names of the son of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his, his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. 
Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Before we get there, you know, in this country, there's been a lot of people that lived before there was a country in this area. What do we call the original inhabitants of North America? Native Americans or Indians, right? Isn't that right, Matthew? I'm picking on Matthew because that is some of his heritage. But once uh, Indo-Europeans came here and became the occupying force, or I don't, I don't, I'm not using these words politically. I mean, give me, uh, give me some slack there. Once we became the inhabitants, now everybody who lives here is called an American, right? Same thing happens in Egypt. In Egypt, there were these hyksos. People pronounce that word differently. I, you know, for fun, sometimes we call them hyksos. <laughs> you know, and the and the hyksos were driven out by another dynasty that became known as Egyptian. This is how Joseph could be in favor, and then later in the same area, the same group of people, him not be known. It was an invading army. And that's, that's what we know is when people talk about Egyptian history, it goes back uh, 10,000 years. Well, the history of the land does. The, the people have changed many times. None of that's important, though. What's important is now Joseph and all of his brothers and all of the generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. If you take notes, and it's okay if you don't, I never have, but I know other people learn that way. If you take notes, as we're Covering this topic of friendly captivity, the first thing you need to know is that the battle plan of the enemy is peaceful oppression. See, these people were living side by side with each other, and they thought, wow, if war breaks out, we're going to have a problem. So at all costs, we need to avoid the appearance of war and suddenly, shrewdly oppress these people. This is not much different than the enemy does to the church. See, Israel was a threat to Egypt. They were numerous. They had multiplied. They were vigorous people. Egypt realized that was a threat. Said, no, we don't want war. At all costs, we don't want to fight. Instead, what we want to do is find a way to subtly, shrewdly oppress these people. The enemy does the same thing to the church. He knows that if he draws a line in the sand and there is out-and-out warfare, we have a God that comes to our aid and we win. So it works much better if he shrewdly tries to oppress you, subtly, a little bit by a little bit. He doesn't want war to break out. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So that Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. You hear these key words, ruthlessly, shrewdly, over and over and over? 
Well, why? Why on earth would you as an Israelite put up with that? We already said they're numerous. They have multiplied. They're all over the place. They're a real threat to the Egyptians. So why would you put up with shrewd, ruthless, oppressive behavior? Because it's all happened under the guise of peace. There's never been a time when Egypt suddenly said, we're going to kill every one of you. There's open warfare here and we want to destroy you. Instead, they say, hey, we need to live peaceful coexistence. But I tell you what, I want you guys to do these kind of jobs. And then after they were used to doing those kind of jobs, I think you should do it for less money than, than we do. After all, we are the original inhabitants of the land. And they ruthlessly and shrewdly began to oppress them. But watch, the devil is never happy for a peaceful oppression to occur, just coexistence. It always progressively gets worse, just like we see it in our country. You know, it was a revolutionary thing one day when Elvis Presley was on the Ed Sullivan Show. You know, this was, this was in some people's mind, a social revolution because the establishment did not want him to be viewed from the waist down. Last year in our Super Bowl, we had uh, a woman totally exposed, naked, and that barely causes a ripple. Do you see how this ruthless, shrewd oppression goes up generation by generation? Think about how it's bred into our children. You know, in the 60s, there was a, a youthful movement, and right alongside it, a Jesus movement too, but a youthful movement where they thought, there's a generation gap here, nobody understands us, and, uh, you know, it's normal for us to do these things. My parents just don't understand. Then the children that came from those folks naturally think, oh, well, it worked that way in those generations. It should work that way in ours. And you push the envelope further and further and further until there's not much left. You know, we live in a day where high school students uh, frequently engage in sexual activity, and that's not enough. Homosexual sexual activity, openly. And that's, that's not even a big deal anymore. When I was in high school some years ago, that was still something that was quiet, that was not broadcast. Today, go to the Sugarland Mall, you will see 16-year-old girls holding each other's hands, walking right out in public, patting each other in places they ought not. I mean, right out. It's turning up degree by degree. So uh, they dealt with them ruthlessly. Verse 15, never content to stay there though. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The battle plan of the enemy is peaceful oppression, but it never stays peaceful. It starts off making sure there's no declaration of war, doing everything subtly if possible. Then you turn up the oppression, but the people put up with it because there is also provision in the oppression. Do you remember some 400 years after Israel uh, was first in Egypt, Moses shows up? What did the people continually complain about right after they come out? We had leeks and onions in, in Egypt. We had food back there. Oh, I know we were oppressed, but there was provision. Sometimes we put up with oppression... We put up with compromise. We put up with things that we know are not right because we get something out of it. Now, if somebody walked in and said, Jennifer, David, I would like to buy your integrity, how much would it be? 60 grand? 100 grand? 
200 grams. How much would it take right now for you just to be morally bankrupt? I couldn't get to a number. But if I put you in situation after situation, each one a little more subtle than the next, you can look back on your life and see 10 years have gone by and I've become morally bankrupt. It's occurred slowly over time. We're a frog in a kettle often we don't realize it. The enemy's plan works in this progression. First, do not declare war. Secondly, turn up the oppression in the midst of provisions so that the people have, even if they begin to notice it, they're worried about losing provision. Thirdly, kill their future. Do you see where he went eventually? All the way down to kill their children, kill their future. If the devil cannot stop you, Matthew, if he can't keep you from existing, from doing something for God, He will try to prevent it. He'll try to oppose it slowly, subtly. And ultimately, since he's, Matthew's already here, his family's already established, what he wants to do is damage the children so that they can't carry Matthew's work further than Matthew did. Don't you see that in our society? Don't you see the corruption of the parents showing up in the children? You know, we made a decision not all that long ago that said, No, we do not want any thought of deity involved in educating our children. And then we are surprised. We're shocked and horrified when we see that they begin to act like animals. Although we teach them that they come from animals. Isn't this strange? But, you know, this was, if this had happened in a single day, everybody would have, my God, we can't let this happen. But it didn't happen in a single day. You know, if you want to understand the battle plan of peaceful oppression, you need to start to understand the tactics of the enemy. Now, I'm not talking about social change here. Y'all, I'm not a politician. I'm certainly not a zealot. I do very good just to vote once every four years. I'm being honest about that, okay? And that has had to come as a conviction from on high. I have to be praying and the Lord basically tell me, you're not being a good steward, Eric, and I, to get me to go vote. I'm not reading the paper every day. I'm not watching the news looking for changes in social norms and hoping to affect the world through politics. That's somebody else's calling, not mine. The church is my calling. But so it goes with our country, it also seems to go with the church. doesn't have to be, but that is what we see. The same, does it surprise you that the divorce rate is no different among evangelicals than the average citizen in the United States? You know, evangelical people love to say, oh, well, in those polls, that's because they include the Catholics. Well, friends, among evangelicals, the divorce rate is the exact same thing as it is among the average citizenry. So don't tell me that the church is pristine and set aside, still a pure, spotless bride in the midst of corruption. The world's become more churchy and the church has become more worldly. If you want to understand the battle plan of peaceful oppression, though, you need to begin to look at the tactics. And the tactics that work on a nation work on an individual because a nation is made up of individuals. It can't work on a whole nation if it doesn't work on an individual level. So as we begin to understand what's going on as a nation, as we begin to understand the plan, we can look at the tactics and we can learn to form a defense. And it's not hard. The Bible spells it out very clearly. You know what's hard? It's never hard to hear the Word. It's never hard to understand or be entertained by it. It's hard to do it. That's why we put above our door the last thing that you see as you walk out here ought to be perform out there what you've practiced in here because otherwise it's for naught. It does not matter how much you know. It matters how much you apply it when you walk out of these doors. Now, I should put a big mirror back there. 
I want you to understand that all of these messages are born out of my weakness. I wouldn't be thinking about these things if I didn't struggle with them too. Okay, I would be preaching solely about the righteousness of God in Christ if I were pristine and perfect. I'm not. Okay, I'm teaching you out of my weakness so that we will all together progress towards the heavenly goal in which we're called. You want to understand the plan, understand his tactics. Let's turn to Genesis 3. Y'all are always surprised when I turn to Genesis 3, aren't you? (laughs) Never read it before. (laughs) Those of you that don't know, that's kind of a joke. Some way or another, Genesis 3 works into every message that I have almost ever taught. The key words from Exodus 1 were ruthlessly, shrewdly. Watch this in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Anybody have another translation? I know you do, Steve. What's it say? Now the serpent was more crafty than any wild animal which Adonai God had made. Still we have crafty there. You remember the King James word, anybody? Subtle. Subtle. You know what another translation for it is? Cunning. Sly. Shrewd. All of those apply to this same word. The very first time a human being ever was deceived by the enemy, it came through a slyness, a craftiness, a subtleness. In fact, the devil chose somebody that was skilled in those things. He did not appear and say, I will overcome you, Eve, with brute force. He did not show up with demonic hordes and force the human race to bow to him. did not happen that way. It was very sly. This has been his game plan from the beginning. His tactics are evident as we begin to read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I want you to notice something. In the beginning, he does not begin to contradict. In the beginning, he does not draw the line and say, God said, but I say. He starts off very subtly. He says, does God really say? Did he really say? In other words, let's just open a dialogue on the subject. You know, let's talk about tax evasion for a minute. I don't know why I'm stuck on social issues, but... Maybe I just paid my taxes and the thought of evasions in my mind. I'm kidding. I I paid my taxes. You know, if you talk to a Christian about ways to cheat on their taxes, it ought not even be open to discussion. But once you can get somebody to begin the dialogue, what happens? The justification starts. You know, there are some things that you are not allowed to entertain. You know? But the devil starts by just trying to get you to open a discussion on the subject. I mean, after all, you don't want to be narrow-minded. You remember how man got into this trouble in the first place? God said, I want to be the only source that you have for what is good and evil. And we're going to find out we chose an alternate source, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Oh, we just wanted to be broad-minded. We just wanted to be open-minded. I mean, we don't want to be narrow little people, do we? Some things we're not allowed to entertain. She begins to entertain it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He always begins by a subtle question 
of God's Word through opening a dialogue. The woman said to the serpent, we may, you know, a yes would have done. You know? Wouldn't a yes have done just fine here? Yes. Walk away. Sometimes, you know, I was taught by an attorney of all things, loose lips sink ships. You ever heard that expression? Say, if they ask you a question in a deposition, a yes will do. (laughs) You know, a no will do. You don't need to run off at the mouth. As she begins to talk, she's opened this dialogue within me and all he's doing is looking for another way to become crafty to trick her into doing something that she knows she's not supposed to do. But let's see how he does it. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. That's a whole other message, but there's certainly no record of God ever saying you must not touch it. So I don't know whether her knowledge of God's Word was in error or not, and it's really beside the point. She should have never been in this discussion. She should have never been entertaining this thought. But look what has already creeped into her conversation. We have an addition to God's Word. You can't touch it. And also, well, you know, we can't eat from all of the others. You know, this one's not really all that different, is it? <laughs> you know, I know God gave me this one spouse, this one mate, but... Let's be honest. All of us are put together pretty much the same way. Is it really that wrong? You know, I mean, this is how those thoughts begin. You can go to some European countries and they'll tell you, it's a natural function. I mean, this is how we're made. Look at it. It's like a key in a lock. You know, I remember there's a a German missionary, a missionary from Germany, an American that went to Germany and came back. I don't know why I'm struggling speaking this morning. And he was, he, he was telling me, Eric, when you talk with the German youth, you know, they think you're crazy. And I said, what are you talking about? This is the most natural thing in the world. It's how God made us to fit together. <laughs> you know? And, boy, that's a fine-sounding argument, isn't it? You can't even be open to dialogue in some areas. But Eve was, and truthfully, we are. Now begins the second phase. If he can get you to open a dialogue on a subject... Then the subtle contradictions come in. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Boy, this is probably the most cunning thing that's ever been done, and it's done to us on an epidemic basis. What happens first is... The devil tricks you into entertaining a thought that you shouldn't. You know what God says, and that ought to be enough. You don't have to then discuss anything other than what God said. A yes would have done. But now you've been drawn into this conversation, and you are entertaining thoughts that you ought not entertain. And so what does the devil do? He begins then to subtly contradict God's Word with half-truths. There are two ways to think about it. If you eat of this, you will die. What would you expect to see in one thought the moment you eat of it? Instant death. Is that true? No. And and that's not exactly what God said. He didn't say there would be instant death. He said, if you eat of it, you'll die. The process began that moment. But when the devil says, oh, that's not true. If you eat of it, you won't die. Is that a half-truth? Sure. They didn't drop dead. He says, so first, open the dialogue. Secondly, 
introduce some half-truths that will call into question God's Word that will begin to contradict. Then thirdly, here's, here's the real weapon of mass destruction or deception, if you will. Give them something that they want. Make it self-serving in some way. Watch this. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the woman heard that. First, a contradiction. No, you won't die. Then secondly, dangled the carrot. No, you're going to be like God. There's something in it for you. There's something God is withholding from you. Isn't that just like sin? You know what God's Word says, but you begin to entertain a conversation about whether or not you're going to do it. And as you begin to do that, you begin to think about what is in it for you. Use the taxes example. Think of all the good I could do with a bigger tax return. Right? Come on, I'm the only one ever had those thoughts. You'll fill out your taxes soon. I mean, always something that is in it for you. Desire is a big part of deception. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, you know the rest of the story, that never would have happened if something else had occurred first. The devil's battle plan is peaceful oppression. Never declare war. Slowly turn up the oppression in the midst of provision so they don't notice it. But ultimately, he desires to kill the future. His tactics, what we just covered, first open a dialogue that calls into question God's Word, then subtly contradict God's Word with half-truths. And lastly, give them something they desire. When human beings have something set in front of them they want, we can be incredibly persistent. We can be tenacious about it. If it's something you don't want to do, we're very good at procrastinating, aren't we? I do it all of the time. But let there be something that you want out there and you can't even sleep until you get it. I mean, it'll occupy your thoughts day and night. The devil knows this. So, if we've looked at his battle plan and we've looked at his tactics, let's look at his weapons. What really is his weapon? What is his WMD, if you will? Turn with me to James. Yeah, I told you I have a political thought this morning, I guess. In James, we really see it all come together. In the first chapter of James, starting in the 13th verse so that we're not in the middle of something. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God... I'm sorry, y'all with me? Uh, This page 1343 in the Thompson chain. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted by his own evil desire. What are you tempted by? It was the devil. No, it's not what James says. So what is it? If it's not the devil that tempts you, what is it that tempts you? What does James just say that it was? Your own evil desire. Let's go back and look at the battle plan for a minute. The battle plan was don't declare war. Make sure, the the example being Egypt and Israel, make sure that they don't know we're at war, but let's peacefully oppress them. Then let's turn up that oppression in the midst of provision. That way they'll stand for it. You remember we saw that in Exodus 1? But ultimately the progression of that was kill their future. 
That was the overall plan. Then when you get into the tactics, well, how does he accomplish that? First, he begins to call into question God's Word. He begins to call into question God's Word by opening a discussion on whether or not it really is practical today, whether it really works, whether or not it's really God's Word for you. Any discussion on any of those subjects opens a door. But what's it open a door for? For Him to introduce half-truths in your life that begin to contradict God's Word. Then thirdly, He gives you something to desire. Well, why would He do that? Why progress right up in this discussion and contradiction through half-truths to something that you desire? Because desire is the real tempter, not the enemy. See, if somebody, just to use an absurd example, if Saddam Hussein was here this morning, he would not be a very tempting figure. But if he offered you a hundred million dollars to do something, your desire for that hundred million dollars could become tempting, could it not? There's not much that is tempting about the devil in and of himself, but he is crafty enough, he is subtle enough to begin to discuss a topic with you, to open a dialogue, to begin to call into question your knowledge of God's Word until He can set something before you that you want. And that evil desire begins to work on you. Now, what's important about that is if you never begin the discussion, it's hard for this desire to be birthed. A lot of times, whether it's fear, whether it's greed, whatever it is, the devil's just simply casting a line out there in front of your face, dragging something in front of you to see where your desires are. And then when you see it and he notices a head jerk, oh, you liked that commercial. Oh, when somebody praised you, you your ears perked up. When your boss insinuated they would reward you financially for doing something wrong, there was a moment of hesitation there. He saw that. So now he wants to open the dialogue with you. And where does that occur? Have any of you ever sat down and talked with the devil? Well, not that you would admit, you know. Not, I mean, he never showed up there in the flesh for you to see. The battle occurs between your ears. You begin to think about that later. And more voices than just your own are there. And I'm not talking about being a schizophrenic. You know that you know that you know something is wrong. The Word is there. It shows you that it's wrong. But you begin to entertain the thought and think about why it might be okay to do it. And finally, you come to a conclusion that you will get something good out of it if you do it. That takes us to James. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. What deceives us? What ultimately deceives you? It's a desire that you shouldn't have. From thoughts that you never should have entertained. From a discussion that you never should have been involved in. When the devil says, Matthew, does God really say? Yes. Walk away. <laughs> Don't spend time dwelling on things that you know are contrary to the will of God. Or you may give birth to a desire in you that if it's nurtured, gives birth to sin. And what does James say? When sin is nurtured, it gives birth to something else. What is that? Death. What did God say would happen? If you eat of the fruit, you'll die. 
We repeat this process over and over and over as if it's a new thing in our lives. And when I say we, I, I mean me too. You know? Every sin that has ever occurred involved you desiring something. Even if it's a sin of total gut reaction. <laughs> you know? Somebody slaps you, you slap them back. You desired vindication. It comes from an unhealthy desire. Turn with me to Proverbs 7 and we'll see if we can paint an example for you. Now, for some reason, now you remember those statistics that I was quoting earlier that I was given from Good Morning America? Adultery. You remember how powerful that is? You know how it turns a wrench in your stomach just to hear that? Well, the writers of the Bible knew that and God knew that. He made us in such a way that a normal person, somebody who's not been conditioned uh, by the enemy, calloused by the enemy to accept it, a normal person is appalled at the thought of adultery. I mean, it, it's, a, it's something that would make you nauseous. God knows that. And so many times He draws an analogy in the Word about Israel being an adulterous nation, about people being adulterous people. When actually no physical activity is occurring, He's talking about something spiritually. Well, in Proverbs 7, we see another thing that can be used as an illusion or an allegory, okay? Proverbs 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words. Store up my commands within you. Boy, that's good advice. You know, did God really say? Well, if the commands are stored up in you, if you're keeping His word, yes, and walk off. <laughs> did God really say? Yes, He did. My son, keep my words and store up my commands with you. Keep my commands and you will break my commands and you will guard my teaching as the apple of your eye. I'm going to come back to this probably several times, but I talked with somebody that I really love this week who I believe has wisdom that I could not have obtained in some areas having not experienced it. And I said, why is it that one who has experienced an addiction to drugs is able to turn away and another who experiences the addiction to drugs stays captive to it all of their life. This is true in the kingdom and out of the kingdom. Now, uh, granted, more people come out of it in the kingdom than in the world. That's, that's a given. But I've, and even in the last few years, known a couple people addicted to crack and cocaine that died in the kingdom or will soon die in the kingdom. Okay? Why is it then that one comes out and another doesn't? And the person with some experience in the area looked at me right now and said, it really comes down to wanting something else more and knowing that the addiction is keeping you from it. All sin really comes down to that. You desire something. We don't, we don't deny that you desire it. Instead, you have to cast off the desire. But once it's there, you know it's there. But you have to want something else more. What does this say? Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teaching as the apple of your eye. Apple of your eye is an expression. And it, it means the most desirable thing for you. If that teaching, if God's Word is held up, is the most desirable thing, and you look at a desire and you go, wow, I want this, but I want the teaching of God more, and this will keep me from that, there's a defense right away. We're going to see that several different ways. But watch what happens. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on a tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your kinsmen. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. When we talked about the battle plan of the enemy, it was peaceful oppression. 
when we talked about his tactics, you know, the questioning and contradiction and desiring, that was really his psychological operation. It all occurs in the mind. Now we've moved right down to his tactics of seduction and destruction. God's word will keep you from it, but watch what happens if you don't heed the word. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. You remember? The way that the devil started with Eve was by opening a conversation. Right here we start with seductive words, opening a conversation. At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice. I saw among the simple. I noticed among the young men a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down to the street near her corner. What does that tell you? It's funny. Isn't it odd? That profession that we're going to read about. Always taking place on a street corner. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're, we're reading something that's a thousand BC and there was a corner known as her corner. <laughs> he was going down to the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. What's that speak of? Anonymity. Nobody will know. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. Now, every time you see the word crafty here, you can substitute cunning, sly, or shrewd, or subtle. All of those words work for it. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute, with crafty intent. She is loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner, she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face, she said, I have a fellowship offering at home. Your footnote there will say, I have a peace offering at home. Today I have fulfilled my vows. Doesn't that seem like a blatant contradiction? How can you be a whore? How can you be dressed like a prostitute lurking in all the corners and be talking about a peace offering? But isn't that what sin always does to a Christian? These two can coexist together. Does God's Word really say that you can't do this and still be a Christian? How many people do you meet out in the workplace, out in the world, that say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I just think that I don't have to go to church or I don't have to serve like you do. Uh, I have my own ways, my own thoughts about God. This is a fellowship offering. It's a peace offering. It's the thought of these two can coexist even though God's Word says they can't. God's Word says... What friendship should you have with the world? You're at war with God if you have friendship with the world. It says, if you walk in darkness and say you have fellowship with the Father, you lie and do not practice the truth. But most of our country has bought into the idea, I'm a Christian. I just don't have to always act like one. Here we go. Her seductive words, I have a peace offering at home. Today I have fulfilled my vows. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Laying out there a desire before him. He should have never been in this conversation to start with. Now we've contradicted God's words. Oh, we can have a peace offering at the same time. A fellowship offering with God. It's possible for the two to coexist. And now we've given birth to desire. Come, let us drink deep of love till morning. Let us enjoy ourselves with love. Wasn't that kind of the anthem of the 60s? All we need is love. 
My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He don't know. It won't hurt anybody. I mean, it's just love. He took his purse filled with money, and he will not be home till full moon. With pers- per- persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. The devil is very, very subtle. He works in the same way whether we're talking about the garden, whether we're talking about Egypt and Israel on a national scale, or whether we're talking about a man on a personal scale. He always starts off in a crafty fashion. He calls into question God's Word, never making an open declaration of war, never saying, I'm against God's Word. Slowly begins to introduce half-truths. Husband's gone, it's just love, it'll be fun. Okay? Until he takes you to a place where there's a desire that you shouldn't have because you never should have been in the conversation, never entertaining those thoughts. Once this desire is birthed, you may not know it, you may not feel it right away. But death is right around the corner. It will give birth to death. So how does a nation that claims to be 80% Christian have a 51% male and female adultery rate? We're like deer that have stepped in the noose and don't even realize it. We have no idea we're a bird darting on our way to death. But it's there. So what does the Word say you should do? First thing you should do, especially as Christians, is found in Romans 7. Turn with me to Romans 7. Boy, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, though, to know that if the conversation is the starting point for the desire to be birthed, don't get in that conversation, right? I worked on a car lot for years, and it was a funny thing. People would pull up to a car lot and not get out of the car. Why is that? Why didn't they want to start a conversation with the salesman? They did not want to be persuaded to do something that they did not want to do. Boy, if Christians could be the same way. You know? You see something that you know you might have a desire for? Don't get out of the car. Don't get out of the boat with Jesus. Instead, think, "Mm, I'm not going to be persuaded to do something I don't want to do. Especially, man, this is the easiest thing in the world since we're so sight-driven. Use your neck. You know? Anybody in here, your neck doesn't work? We'll pray you'll get healing. Turn your head. Women, you've got a whole different problem. It's not eyes-driven, it's ears-driven. You're lied to. Oh, he's a nice guy. You know? He cares for me. My husband, you know, he ignores me these days. Now, I'm talking about obvious natural things. This occurs on all kinds of levels. You know, in Romans 7? So what is the church to do about this battle plan, the tactics and the weapons of the enemy? Well, the first thing the church needs to do is what Paul said in Romans 7. First, you have to acknowledge there's a problem here. It's Romans 7, verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The first thing you need to do 
is you come back, you remember the peaceful oppression? What was the first point that the enemy made sure he did not do? Declare war. Don't let him know there's war. So as Christian, first off, you need to acknowledge, no, there is a war. And the truth is, it's not fought out there among the other people. It's not everybody else's problem. It starts with me. There's a part of me that is a wretched person. And I need to acknowledge that inside, I am torn between the good that I know to do and the evil that I don't want to do at times. Acknowledge the warfare, number one. Then the second thing that you need to do, this is found in Joel. Now, Joel, I know, will be harder for some of you to find. It's on page 1014 in the Thompson chain. Joel's in the Minor Prophets. If you find Daniel and hang a right, it's there before you get to Micah and Amos and some of the other books. The enemy's battle plan involves refusing to declare war, peaceful oppression while maintaining some provision. Ultimately, let's kill their future. His tactics in this battle involve uh, opening a conversation about whether or not God's Word is really true, subtly contradicting it with half-truths, giving you something to desire so that ultimately it wasn't Him that did it to you. You chose to go after something. I chose to do it. Nobody made me do it. I chose to do it. And man's choices. There's a way that seems right to man and in the end it leads to death. All of this is building towards something. As a human being, you have to acknowledge the warfare is there. And then you have to decide. Joel 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations, from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the wine press is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. You want to prepare for war? You want to get ready for the enemy? You want to resist his psychological operations, his weapons of mass destruction? You want to know his battle plan? It starts with a decision. When you find yourself in a valley for warfare, you need to be prepared for war. You need to decide before you leave the building today, I will choose to meditate on God's commands and not the evil desires of my heart. That happens when you acknowledge that there is something there. Paul did. But you make the decision beforehand, there is no way on earth I will not get into that discussion. You know, if you don't want to be an alcoholic, don't drink. I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with alcohol. I drink wine. I have for a very long time. But if this is something that is an evil desire that is in your heart, don't go there. If you have a problem watching Hell's Box Office or Cinemax or whatever it is that is on your TV set, turn off the cable. Make the decision ahead of time so that you don't end up in a conversation with the enemy you're not supposed to be having, giving birth to something that ought not be there. Now, that's really great, Eric, but that's not really practical. And I agree. There are times it's not. You cannot remove yourself totally from the world. You can't. You cannot remove every influence that might entice you. So instead, you have to build up the inner man to be able to resist 
the devil that he might flee from you. I don't need to read the rest of Joel at this point. Turn with me to Romans 6. Y'all can find Romans. We were just there. Don't you wish I would made you hold your finger in it? <laughs> Romans 6 in the Thompson Chain is on page 1253. In the New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you get to Corinthians, you went too far, hang a left. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? What we're really talking about this at this part... Yeah, I'll get there. What we're really talking about in this part is we discovered the enemy's battle plan, the enemy's tactics, and the enemy's weapons. Now, our response to that, first off, is in Romans 7. You acknowledge that there's a war. He doesn't want you to know there's a war. Well, you acknowledge that there is a war. Then the second part from Joel, you declare war on him. You make the decision ahead of time. Before we even get into this discussion, you need to know, I'm going to hit you with the Word of God. Then we start to look at our methods. What are the Christian's methods of warfare? Well, the first part of it is, you decide not to go on sinning. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It's a really interesting proposition that Paul's fixing to make. How do you fight with somebody that's dead? What can you do to him? If I'm dead and you walk up and call me a worthless SOB, how, how much will that affect me? I'm dead. If you kick me, how much will that hurt me? I'm dead. If you spit in my face in a public street, how much would that really bother me if I were literally dead? Now, you say, but we're not literally dead. It's okay, Paul covers that. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that the old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to keep reading there in a minute. What do you do as a Christian? You acknowledge there's a war. What else do you do? You declare war. You make the decision to be at war with the enemies of God, knowing that part of that is an evil desire that's within you. Then you count yourself. You act as if you were a dead man every time something tries to entice you. You know, if David is dead here on the floor and I'm offering him a Big Mac, how hungry is a dead guy? You know? If I'm trying to get David to do any... There are times he go, well, they hurt my feelings. You shouldn't be able to have your feelings hurt. You're supposed to count yourself dead. You know, this is an extreme weapon. Basically what this is, is you have no fear of loss because you've already agreed to lose everything. You have no fear of your life not going the way that you want it to because you already gave up that and decided it was going to go the way Jesus wanted it to go. A dead man really is not very worried about very much. Now the great paradox in Christianity is if you count yourself dead, 
He'll count you alive. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, the next chapter talks about slaves and sin, and sin being a slave master over you. You remember that in Egypt, there was never a declaration of war, but they ruthlessly, shrewdly began to turn up the pressure until the people found themselves in bondage and in slavery. Isn't it funny? You cannot point to a war. There was no war that brought Israel under Egypt slavery. What we're deciding to do as Christians is say, buddy, there's, there's darn sure going to be a fight. I may not win every battle, but there is certainly going to be a fight. You are not going to get me to desire something that I just chased to my death. We will fight over this. What he's looking for is a way to do this through psychological operations so that there is no fight. There's not naturally the same fight in a child today to resist certain evil that's prevalent in the world that there was 50 years ago because we have conditioned ourselves to live in friendly captivity. Conditioned ourselves to live around it. Oh, it's not wrong. It's just a choice. I mean, think about the moral horror of in this city, how many babies were killed this week? Think about that for a minute. Say, no, I don't want to think about it. It hurts. It's horrible. Yeah, well, sometimes we need... You know, there are people that are not watching the movie The Passion of the Christ for one reason. They don't want to be confronted with the horrible truth. Now, I'm telling you, it made me sick to my stomach. It, it was like as if somebody was beating up Matthew in front of me and I were not stopping it. I mean, I love Jesus. He is my friend. It hurt to see that even though I know that this movie is just a movie. But I feel like you need to be confronted with a certain amount of moral horror so that your heart doesn't get callous. So that we are not the frog in the kettle. You need sometimes to contemplate on just how bad sin is and the fact that it leads to death and destroys lives. You need to think about that sometimes. And it will wake you up. Don't allow yourself to be put to sleep. Don't allow yourself to become callous towards sin. In 2 Corinthians 10, and we're going to close here very soon, from Romans you can make a right, Paul states the blatantly obvious. We know that the problem is that we're in conversations that we shouldn't have, entertaining thoughts we shouldn't have. And so the enemy is shrewdly oppressing us with promises of provision, we're giving up our freedom to do good in Christ every day. So Paul says in chapter 10, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
Here's the magic verse. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If you find yourself having a conversation with the enemy that you ought not have, and desire is birth, you do not have to sin because you desire. You are not an animal. Paul said it this way. It is not foods for the stomach and stomach for the foods. You are not a brute beast just craving after desires. You have a choice. Joel said prepare for war in the valley of decision. We are preparing for war. And it occurs in a psychological operation when the devil introduces a desire that you ought not have. I'm going to be depressed today. I'm going to lay in bed. I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to do anything. You decide whether you feel like it or not, that that will not be true for you today. And he said, but it's hard. That's right. He wants you to do it without a fight. Fight. Stand up and fight. Take that thought and make it obedient to Jesus. When you have a thought of ill gain, you know, is it enticing? Sure, it's enticing. Which one of us would not like to have more resources? But you're not going to go without a fight. It's not a foregone conclusion that you must lose. In fact, God put Himself in you so that you can fight. We have already acknowledged that sin's working in your members, but what we often refuse to acknowledge is there should be warfare working because there's sin in your members. You do not have to do the things you don't want to do anymore. Prepare for war in the valley of decision. Take captive thoughts that exalt themselves against Christ. When you have that thought that says, my husband's an idiot, cast it down even if it's true. Because God called him the head of your house. When you have the thought that you're married to the wrong woman, cast it down because you're not allowed to have it. It's exalting itself against what you know about Jesus. When you begin to worry that you can't pay your bills, Cast it down. God said He cares for you and He will provide. Make it obedient to Jesus. So, well, I can't help the way that I think. Well, then you've bought into the lie of the enemy already. You can. Well, I can't help the way I feel. You can. Well, it's just the way that I am. Well, change. That's what Christianity is. It's shedding the old life for a new one. Now, all this should be tempered, especially when you look towards any other human being. See, because I'm talking to you. I'm not trying to teach Matthew how he should think about David or Jennifer how she should think about Bobby. I'm trying to teach you how you should think about you. When you look towards other human beings, you be patient. God's not through with them yet. They may have a hard time casting down a thought in an area you don't have a problem casting down a thought. Does that make you better? Not at all. You want God to reveal the thoughts you have a problem casting down? What if when you walk through this door they were written on your forehead? It's funny, every time a preacher raises up that has a worldwide ministry and they get a little full of themselves, and I love them. God does this for their benefit. Some hidden thing in their heart becomes known to the whole world. Does that mean you throw them away? No, not at all. That's God's humbling process. But He does that because there is only one perfected male and His name was Jesus. All the rest of us are objects of His grace depending on His strength to make the right decision. Turn with me to James. You know, this whole message was going to come from Judges 14, and I've never gone to Judges 14. Isn't that interesting? Um, Okay, for James, you want to hang a right. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. It would be right after Hebrews and before Peter. This is James 13, 
I'm sorry, there is no James 13. It's on page 1345 in the Thompson chain, and it's James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? It's amazing how consistent the word can be. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Sounds like James has a firm grasp on the battle that he's in, doesn't it? Or do you think that the Scripture says without reason, the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? There's a battle within you, we know that. It comes between the Spirit of God that is in you and your own flesh. But He's envious for all of you intensely. He's going to perfect you. There will be a day when the Spirit of God will be the only voice, the only drawing power in your body. You'll be glorified at that point. But He's envious for all of you. He does not want to share you with that side of you that wants to do evil. But He gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's James' battle plan. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, O sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He goes on to give them thoughts about daily lifting. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Humble yourself and he will lift you up. You know what that has to do with? Declaring war and refusing to desire things you shouldn't. Take up a humble life. God will give you what you need. Now, Judges 14 describes a scenario that we don't have time to read about. Samson was born for the purpose of delivering Israel. This guy was mightily equipped. I mean, you set up a city gate, he can tear it down. You put him in a temple to a foreign god to make sport of him, and he'll kill more people in his own death than in all of his life. But Samson had a problem. He was born for that purpose, but he wasn't carrying it out. Israel had been in captivity to the Philistines for 40 years. And in 40 years, you can get used to a situation. Six months, you can get used to a situation. Israel was used to Israel had, to the Philistines having their way with them for 40 years. We'll give you a certain part of our grain. We'll give you whatever you want. Come in, do what you want to us. Just don't kill us all. Peaceful oppression. So God sent somebody. God sent somebody that was supposed to have the message prepare for war. Prepare for war and let's go out and let's fight because God will give us the victory. But he didn't realize he was at war. So something happened. He began to have a desire for something he was not supposed to have. He began to have a desire for a foreign bride. And his parents resisted this because parents want their children to do what's right even if their own lives aren't right. You know? You remember that commercial? It's supposed to be so hard-hitting. It's become funny in our time. But it says, where did you learn this? You know, the kid's smoking pot. From you, Dad. From watching you. That's supposed to really hurt. Because even if the dad's a failure, he doesn't want his kid to be a failure. Right? Well, the parents want Samson to do what's right. And they say, hey, why are you looking for a foreign bride? And Judges 14 says, they didn't realize this was from the Lord who was looking for an occasion to confront the Philistines. 
God provided in Samson's life a horrible event. He fell in love with somebody and she was taken away from him and given to another man. And you know why? So that Samson would have a renewed vigor for wanting to attack the Philistines. If you live in friendly captivity too long, if you refuse to prepare for war, if you refuse to make the decision to fight on your own, God will provide a very painful experience for you that reminds you, I'm supposed to be light, they're supposed to be dark. He will cause there to be a separation. He'll send Moses, he'll send Daniel, he'll do something in your life that causes you to go, wow, I'm supposed to be in light, they're supposed to be in dark. There's a distinction between us because the two cannot cohabit the same space. Can't do it. What is okay is for there to be a war raging. What is not okay is for you to have sinful desires in your heart that you don't war against. And that only happens to a Christian when they've been there for a long time. Because at first, the thought of a curse word, you feel like you crucified Jesus. But with enough practice, it can come with regularity. At first, the thought of doing something you shouldn't is so, oh my God, no, I could never. I've been born again. But with enough practice, it all of a sudden you lay right down next to your captor. Don't do it. Instead, we're going to do what the Word says. Y'all stand up and let's pray.